Jesse Douglas Smith McGraw, and this is What Moves You with Jesse. I'm a transformative coach on a mission to share an understanding of how our minds work that challenges how we react to life and our thoughts. I love to share stories and common sense ideas that empower you to take charge of yourself in a way that brings immediate and profound change. What I know to be true is that we are all innately healthy and doing our best with the thinking we have available to us on a moment-to-moment basis. And waking up to this will change what moves you. I'm so happy you're here. everyone and welcome back to what moves you with Jesse. We are here today with one of my new and dear friends and colleagues, Wynn Morgan. Wynn, say hi. Hi. <laughs> I said I'd be very, I don't know what the word be, pliable to whatever you asked and you said say hi, so I'm just saying hi. Yeah. What's next? It's good to be here, seriously, Jesse, really good to be here. You know what's really interesting, okay, full disclosure, I've been aware of what moves you with Jesse, right, for quite a while. And it took ages after you sent me an email for me to put the two of you together, the person who sent the email, and that podcast, I think until, you know, we met three weeks ago in person in Los Angeles, right? I hadn't realized until, wait a minute. So really nice to be here. Really nice to be here. Oh, that's amazing. Right on, Wynn. That's so cool. I love learning something new right on the spot. This is the fresh and aliveness that's available to all of us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but yes, um, I want to give a little bit of a background for folks. So um, Wynn and is um, part of the Three Principles Global Community of Practitioners, who is a coaching consultant in the same practice and understanding that I share with my clients and all of you guys here. Um, I have been aware of Wynn for many years and have been um, admiring him from far away. I've seen many videos and talks of him uh, speaking with a kind of um, ultimate mentor for a lot of us, George Pransky is who is how I found how I found you win. Um, but there's the reason why I wanted have always wanted you as a guest on this podcast win is because you have such an incredible groundedness to you. There is, you know, when people talk in terms of energy as far as you know earth air fire water that kind of thing you are just so earthbound and it's so comforting to listen to you speak you're you are so well articulate in in all of this understanding you see very simply and clearly when i hear you uh when i watch you listen to others and then what what occurs to you to to share for them to to see something new um I have always gained insights when I listen to you and such a deep sense of comfort because of your presence and how you are in the world. And it is such um, such a gift to now be, and I'll share this with everybody here, um, to now be in cahoots with you for us to be working on something to, you know, to co-teach together. We're doing a retreat in March of 2024. Unfortunately, for anybody listening beyond that date, March 16th and 17th, 2024, we're co-teaching a retreat together in London, all around stress. But far before that, when I have been in deep admiration of how you move through the world and how you see things. So thank you so much for saying yes to this podcast, for saying yes to working with me on this retreat that we're doing in London together. Um, I am just so thrilled to have such a dear human in my life in such close proximity now that I was looking at from afar for so long. So thank you so much. Thank you. That was a, a lovely introduction. I mean, Heck, you're giving me a lot to live up to now, right? For the, <laughs> our dear listener. Well, luckily, it's not the curse of a commentator. You know, when they say something, well, this person has never missed a field goal from this distance before, and then they go and blow it. So I just hope that you know I don't fall into that category. But no, I've said that, of course, it won't happen. 
Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I would love to start from the beginning a little bit when can you share um, before? Well, let's go simple. Let's go simple. Where are you in the world? Where, where, where did you, where did you grow up? Share a little bit about that. I grew up in the city of Swansea in South Wales. So on the coast. Um, and I lived there until I was 25. I think 25 or 26. No, I was still 25 when I left Wales, when I left Swansea. I knew, and while I'd been away on holiday and vacation in many places in that time, I went to university in Cardiff, which was like 45 miles away. Um, so from the second biggest city of Wales, of Swansea, to the biggest city of Wales, Cardiff. So not that far from home. Um, however, between my second and third year of university, because of my love for the San Francisco 49ers, which you and I have talked about a few times over the last couple of months, um, I wanted to go to San Francisco and there was an opportunity between my second and third year of university to work um, in the summer break. And the university would arrange whatever work permits anyone would need. Um, so I went to the Bay Area um, for three months in the summer of 1991. And that was really my only time it was certainly my only time out of Europe at that point. Um, that was my first experience of the U.S. And as you know, I've been back many, many times since. That's amazing. So, tell us what was your um, what was what was it like to be when <laughs> inside inside yourself? What was your experience of yourself like before before this understanding? Like how you know how were you inside yourself in growing up and yeah? It's an interesting question because there's a big difference between inside myself and the outside um, persona that I was. Um, deploying, if you like. Um, inside, I was very serious, um, very insecure, very, I don't know what other words would be, but I remember being depressed as a very, very young boy. Um, I didn't know it was called depressed at the time, but you know, some of the thoughts that I was having were just not the kind of thing that I've, that I realized were kind of that common for someone of that age. You know, from a, being a toddler, being really serious about life, thinking very seriously about things when I was six and when I was eight and so forth. And outwardly, I'd often be kind of um, happy-go-lucky, um, good at picking fights, quite angry, kind of, but angry and funny. Um, and even though, you know, I'd be picking fights, sometimes people would just wouldn't take me seriously because it was just, it looked like I was just being funny. Um, but inside, uh, yeah, it was, I was often unhappy and that it didn't change until very recently, really, that I've realized I've become at peace with myself. Um, and that happened probably in the last 10 years, wow. somewhere between, I don't know, 10 and 12 years ago that, that happened. Um, and now not only am I, you know, at peace with being myself, I'm really glad to be myself now, which is a heck of a thing. And. And nothing's changed on the outside. But my inside view of myself, going back to your question, is very different than it used to be when I was a kid growing up. Wow. Were you, um, <clears throat> so as you as you were going down the path of life before you kind of woke up in the last 10 years, right? As you were going down the path of life in those, you know, 20s and, you know, all of those kind of years, um, what did you... What did you, uh, what was the meaning that you made of, of your experience inside of yourself? Did you, did you pin it on, on your environment and your growing up years, or did you not even really make sense of it in that kind of way? Yeah, go ahead. So here's what I do know. You know, a lot of people, they can point to their upbringing to be the reason that they felt certain things. You know, my upbringing was amazing. Wonderful family, great parents, amazing grandparents, great brother. Um, everything was great. Got a dog when on my 10th birthday. You know, I wasn't lacking in anything, but I found it very easy to be sad. That's what I was really good at. Now, what I then found out I was also really good at 
as it transpired from about the age of 12 onwards, my academic work just started to get really good. So I found the value in myself that I'd been lacking, um, been lacking self-value. And I found it in my academic work. So, you know, school grades went really high. And it was funny because I didn't really have to try hard. I was really fortunate in that way, that the way that my mind worked and works is very adept at exams, you know, picking up things quite quickly, learning, um, not spending too much time studying, doing lots of things last minute and acing things, right? You know, getting really great grades. And, you know, that carried on right the way through all my schooling until university. And then it, it stopped because I just didn't care anymore because I thought the course I was doing, I didn't enjoy university. I was, you know, seeing somebody back home in Swansea and I was never really into university life. And I just didn't, couldn't be bothered. And at that point, you had to work to get grades. You just couldn't, you know. Well, the issue was, I think, is that no one made you show up to things. So I didn't show up to things. At school, you had to go. At university, you didn't have to go, so I didn't. And, uh, well, it doesn't take long before that comes back and bites you, right? Well, it did bite me. And anyway, I managed to scrape enough for me to get a second chance at the end of the first year and scrape through university to get an honors degree. Um, and then I went to the big world of work. And then I, you know, I was always, I thought, well, my value is because I had a, I was doing well at work, really good career. I was progressing through um, a company I fell into when I was about 24 um, and progressed really well due to some innate skills that I didn't know I had, relationship building skills with people and a, a decent listener. And then because I was progressing really quickly, I was happy with myself because again, I was looking outside of myself for that self-value. And, and, and as soon as that didn't work out the way I wanted it to, then there was another deep out of depression. And um, yeah, and that was a kind of, um, it happened a lot as a series of things. So I was a hung, high functioning manic depressive was what one therapist called me. Yeah. Wow. So when I'm, what, am I hearing it correctly that there was, um, you had kind of tied your, tied your self-worth to your professional life. And so when that would roller coaster as it does for everybody, that it would kind of rock your world. Yeah, absolutely. So I would always be looking outside of myself for me to feel something inside and the outside world is inherently volatile. Um, and of course not where feelings and worth come from. So I was looking in the wrong place and, um, a, that, that was just an incorrect paradigm I had in my mind, an incorrect model of the world. And at the same time, depending on something volatile for something I needed to be certain was just like doomed to have many bouts of being disappointed with myself and with life. I got to pull out this, this nugget of wisdom you just said. Depending on something volatile to be certain. Yeah. I don't think I've said that before in those words, but it is a summary of, you know, my model of life. Well, it's just so relatable. That's why it's yeah. a truth bomb moment. <laughs> you know, if I was, yeah. if I had bells and whistles on this podcast, I'd add a few sound effects <laughs> because it's so common for all, for so many of us humans, right? To just to 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 do that you know to to be looking towards even you know people who are in marriages and relationships that aren't feeling right but people continue to look to it to feel whole you know and same with professional life you cannot depend on things to stay consistent because that's i mean that's not the nature of life in general but you know professional work too i think we get caught up in ideas of you know, oh, I found my thing. Now I'll just ride this until the end of my days. And that's where we can get so thrown off. I've heard you say this. I love, you know, thrown off the axis, you know, of thrown off our axis around, um, you know, when, when we can't rely on that with certainty. And like you're saying. Yeah. yeah. And what were you doing professionally before you started doing uh, 
this, you know, global coaching work in the same field that we do together? I was in sales. So that's my background was in um, sales, first of all, business to consumer, um, professional services in the finance world and private healthcare. Um, and I was pretty decent at it. But it was, again, so it was all commission-based, totally commission-based, and that wasn't really thrilling me. And, you know, there wasn't a progression there that I wanted. And I saw an advert in my local paper in South Wales, and there was this company that wanted a Welsh speaker, first language Welsh, um, someone who had sales experience and had a, a degree. I thought, well, I've got those three things. So I applied. And apparently I was the only one who had those three things who applied. So guess what? I got the job working for the PepsiCo business, the Frito-Lay business in the UK, Walker's, uh, Walker's Crisps and Snacks, as it was then known um, back in 1994. In 95, actually, in April of 95, I joined them um, to cover Southwest Wales. And so I had that patch for eight months. They wanted someone for a few years, but apparently I was doing a good job. So they offered me a promotion to move out of Wales. And that's when I left Wales back in the early 1996. Yeah, and then I progressed again through that organization quite quickly until that, until I didn't. And I plateaued. And at the same time, someone offered me my dream job, really. Because um, at that point, I was going on training courses and I thought, that looks like fun. How do I do that for a living? That's better than selling stuff. Um, being, you know, the center of attention and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, that does look like fun. And um, someone offered me the job to head up a training department. Someone who was my first boss um, at Walker's and um, and his boss kind of like wanted to meet me and wanted to know what I wanted to do next. And I said, okay, well, one of these three things. And they came back with a really great offer. So I left and joined the competition. And... In two years then, that was in 1999 to 2001, really great bunch of people to work with. And I was delivering training and writing training. And, and one of the first things that that company said they wanted help with was, um, I'd like you to train our managers in being better coaches. And I went, okay. I didn't know what that meant, but I knew what I could do. I could go into a bookshop and buy some books on coaching in the workplace. And I bought two books on coaching in the workplace that I still have. And um, I wrote a workshop based upon that, a training course for every all of the managers in that company, in that division. And that was my first entry into coaching. It was a lot of fun. Way back. So that would have been in, yeah, the middle of, middle to late of 1999. So coming up to 24, 25 years ago now. Yeah. Wow. I don't know how that's possible considering you still look like you're 25. <laughs> Thank you very much, you fibber. <laughs> yeah, it was weird, right? Because it's way over half my life ago. Yeah, that's Thanks amazing. for the compliment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so give us a feeling for that transition of going from feeling very serious and heavy and pinning all of your self-worth on your professional life to you kind of realizing there might be another way. Was it through an insight inside of yourself that made you curious or was it? No. Okay. I love it. Share. How did you get uh, accident, serendipity, like all that lovely thing. Right. So, um, in 2001, um, two things happened. One is I, I only wanted to join that company for two years anyway, to see if it was what I really wanted to do to be a training consultant and deliver training to companies. And I realized it was, and that was my plan two years there. And then I'm off and joining a training consultancy company. But at the same time, they were closing down my division of the business. So we got about you know, 180 out of 210 people got laid off. Uh, me being one of them. Now they did offer me something else, but I wasn't interested. So, you know, they, at that point, they were um, pretty good with taking care of people. And um, so I had a little bit of money being paid to me and applying to these training consultancy um, companies. And the company that I was excited about who trained me back in my days with the Frito-Lay business at Walker's were the company who took me on in 2001. And as I was progressing in that company, again, you know, bumpy, but, you know, doing an okay job and learning. Um, I was learning things about NLP 
And I thought, well, that's really interesting. It's helped. I think it might help me and it will help the company with, you know, their range of training services they have for various organizations. And in one of the training courses um, that I, I, I did myself, funded myself, there were three people running this training course. One was a very well-known person here in the UK, Paul McKenna, who's a really lovely guy. Um, and very well known here in the UK from, um, he used to have a TV show here in the UK on um, hypnosis. And he moved on to NLP and he was running a training course with the co-founder of NLP, Richard Bandler, Dr. Richard Bandler, who I also enjoyed. And a third guy by the name of Michael Neal, who I didn't know. And spending a week with the three of them um, on the training of NLP, Michael was the one who I thought was more heartfelt and I would, I'd got him more, I could, you know, connected with what he was talking about more. So I followed his career. And, um, and while I was frequently depressed again and very insecure in myself, um, and at that, you know, at that point as well, I had a, a significant kind of breakdown when I was 35 around that time, anywhere over an 18 month period. Um, and you know, the first time I went to get pr proper help, not just quiet therapy, and you know, was you know had a various different diagnoses that I don't really buy into anymore. One of them I just mentioned to you, um, and I was on medication for the very first time: antidepressants, mood stabilizers, sleeping pills, because I was an insomniac. Um, and I even got a diary. When I had a, a, a deep out of repression a bit later on in 2008, I kept a journal about what it felt like because I thought when I'm not in it, this might be helpful for me to look back on. And I coined this phrase, which probably wasn't mine, but it, it looked like it was clever, situational depression. And um, when I started writing about situational depression, and now it's kind of a little bit interesting for me to look back and think that that was the situation was the cause of my depression because that's how it really looked. Anyway, getting to the point, in all of this bumping around with the NLP and liking Michael Neal and following his career, during that bout of depression in May 2008, I was listening to a set of CDs that he just released on called Effortless Success. And I was working every day in London, which is an hour's train journey from where I am on the outskirts of Windsor in Berkshire. And um, in this bout of depression, and remember high-functioning manic depressive is the, the phrase I said earlier on. This was an example of that. So I could deliver training, deliver coaching to companies, but just be miserable either side of it on the way in and the way out. But on the way in, I was listening to these CDs. And on the way out, listening to these CDs. So over that five-day period, I had 10 hours worth of listening to Effortless Success by Michael. And I felt better. And I thought, wait, what's this? What are, what's happening that I'm feeling better and nothing's changed other than me listening to this? So we started emailing. And um, a year and a half later, I was um, in his home in Los Angeles. I had a half-day session with him during a two-week vacation in California, a week in San Francisco, a week in L.A., and he was talking about things that are really different from when I first met him in 2005, six, seven. It wasn't NLP anymore. It was something very different that I didn't understand and didn't like because I went there to be fixed. And effectively, he was saying, you've made up that you need fixing. I couldn't hear it. Couldn't hear it. Um, but I must have heard something because as, as I left his house that day, and this was in December of 2010, I said, hey, if you do that super coach thing again in 2012, which was in 13 months time after this conversation was happening, I'll come. And he said, okay. In my mind, it was, he was thinking, can't wait to get rid of this guy, waste of time, what the hell, right? It's not what he thought. We, we chatted about it years later and his recollection of it was very different. The fact that he remembered me in that session was kind of like cool to begin with. But no, no, I knew you'd heard something, but you were just really busy. And that's what he said when we chatted over breakfast in, I think, 2016. So I went, uh, came back home. My business 
thrived in 2011 and the only thing was different was oh it's changed something's loosened inside me here in my head and i went yeah i, I want to do that program he does so the august of that year i was all signed up to do this super coach thing and the very first weekend of super coach in january of 2012 he started talking about the three principles and i had no idea what he was talking about and i didn't the entire six months of that program even though I met George and Linda Pransky for the first time, I met Aaron Turner and um, Mara Gleason as well as then. So the very first time that Mara and her now husband, Eric, met, I remember that day when they very first met in the April of that year. And then I went back for another round of that program because my coaching was changing and the impact of it was amazing even though I didn't really understand what I was pointing at and I felt better clients are doing great and when I went back after about four months to do another round I was a different person now I don't know what to put it down to but something inside shifted that was imperceptible to me and unconscious and um so when would that have been? That was October of 2012 when I noticed a big shift in me, which is like 12 years ago. Wow. Coming up to 12 years ago. And then since then, it's gone deeper and deeper. I spent a lot of time with um, the people that you mentioned earlier on, George Pransky, Linda Pransky, and Barbara Patterson, who I know you, you spent a lot of time with as well, who have been amazing to me. And um, and the other people I just mentioned too, and, and, and also Elsie Spittle has been phenomenal to me over the last kind of, I don't know, six years. And the impact it's had on my life and then spreading this for other people to have their own insights about how well they're made and how enjoyable life is when we're not just thinking about it or trying hard to be something that we're not or making up stories and then fixing a story that we've made up has been beyond what I could have thought was possible. Wow. So I would love for you to share a little bit because it's so relatable when you said that your very first visit with Michael, when he was telling you that you were, whatever the words are that he used, okay, whole, healthy, yeah. all those things, but that you were making up that you weren't okay. Um, and I love that you've, that you experienced resistance to that at first. And also, it speaks so highly to the spiritual nature of life, the fact that you that you did feel that there was a little bit of a, I've said it before to folks, that it feels a little bit like a spiritual surgery, because sometimes things just happen to, you know, uh, fall away without us having to do anything. And I think we are so conditioned to believe that it takes our effort for things to shift inside as opposed to recognizing that we can have conversations that just touch our common sense. And so things start to fall away without us efforting. And that, that concept sounds ungraspable, but here you are and you had that experience where yeah. on the top of your thought and feeling experience, you were in resistance of there's no way that what you're saying can be true. And yet underneath underneath all of that noise, something was shifting. So can you speak to that a little bit? Because I think it's very relatable for people to feel like it's um, oversimplified or um, too, too ordinary for us to see uh, that we are making up our suffering. Well, I wouldn't want to convince anyone of that because I couldn't have been convinced. I had to live it. And I had to join the dots for myself. So it, it's um, one way of saying, I don't think I'm going to answer that question other than I know what it's like. That's it. Yes. Yes. Nice. Uh, and the number of times I used to, you know, say this a lot to people. Well, if you think you're a slow learner, <laughs> you got nothing on me, right? I don't know if that's true. But I know it took me a long time before I saw anything. Seriously, right? I'd fly to LA for a long weekend every month for six months. And at the end of that six months, what I got 
which was small but huge for me is that I am not my thinking. That's what I said after six months of listening to these amazing teachers. How many, how many days there were and all the masterclasses I attended. That was huge for me. And I didn't even know the words coming out of my mouth when the microphone was my turn to share at the end of that program. What are you grateful for? Well, I know I'm not my thinking. I thought, well, who said that? Evidently, that was me. I went, gee. I didn't know I knew that. I didn't know I was grateful for that. Pass the microphone on. But I was feeling better. I was more free. Some, you know, some amazing thoughts about myself just disappeared without me having to do anything about them, going back to your question, without efforting. So that's the best I got on that question. Yeah. That, well, that's a good answer. <laughs> um, so I am interested in you sharing a little bit. I am interested in you sharing a little bit around what has loosened up for you, or let me say it a different way. Hold on a second. Um, as you said, you had experienced being labeled with a bunch of different uh, diagnoses, right? And one in particular. Okay. One in yeah. particular. And oftentimes I'll say to folks who come to me with that kind of experience, right? Um, I'll say, did you feel a sense of freedom and and kind of peace when you heard it? Because then it normalized all of the things that you thought were wrong with you. And then by the time you got to your car, it started to sink in. What does this mean now about the rest of my life that I have this? You know, it's like there there kind of can be this transition of, oh, thank God, I, I know I know what all of this means now. And then as you kind of move through the world, it's, you start to then live up to what that, what the, what that label might mean for you. I, what was your experience in that? Well, the first part was de definitely true. When the head of therapy in this one, um, I don't know, facility, not far from me, when he, you know, after a questionnaire and he told me, um, what that meant, even though it's got a different name now than it used to, it's now called bipolar two. It used to be called cyclothymia. Um, so that was like manic depressive, but less of the highs, even though I have a lot of the, or had a lot of the behavioral traits and patterns of someone who gets manic episodes. I had all of the traits of someone who has deep depression and frequent. Um, but that was all I felt from that was relief. A little bit of puzzlement about, okay, given that, now what do I do? And he well, here's some medication. So they found this thing that manages moods, so you have less of the highs and lows. And this is one for depression. So this will keep more of the, I can't even remember the blooming hormone now. Um, this is, was an SSRI. Um, serotonin, of course, with the S, gave me the clue back into it. And, uh, and this will help regulate your sleep for a couple of months beyond this, and then you'll be fine. I didn't have the... Oh, no, no, I'm depressed about being labeled with this. It always felt okay. But I, I kept looking. I kept seeking for, given this and how I am, um, how do I navigate life? I didn't realize what else was on offer, which was, wait, there's nothing wrong in feeling low. This is what feeling low, the cause of feeling low, and I was trying to uh, cure the symptoms when the symptoms were pointing at the cause, and the cause was totally blind to me. I had no idea, and most of modern psychiatry has no idea either. You know, and, and thankfully, there are some people that you and I know who work in that field or have worked in that field for quite a while who are shaking up that entire um, paradigm of how mental wellness and mental health is actually um, the helping profession within that world. Because I just didn't know that when I was feeling low, thought looks more real. End of story. People are more likely to take something personally in a low mood. End of story. 
And all I was doing was thinking that these symptoms were causes of something more wrong with me. No, no, no. They were just, that's what it looks like in a, in a depressed state. In a low mood, that's how it feels. But I was doing more thinking to solve a thinking problem. Lo and behold, I got myself innocently in a deeper mood pit. Yes, yes. I've heard you say in in private, you and I have you've you've shared this one little story that I would love for you to share with others because it's oh well. So I don't know if I'm up for that. Tell me what the story is first of all. <laughs> Might have overshared. <laughs> no, it's completely relatable and very benign. But um, when you were talking to Barb Patterson and you were saying, uh, you know, you were you were you were talking about how you were still feeling low, and she said, "That's not what this is about." Right. Yeah, I am willing to share this. So <laughs> Bob and I, when we studied together back in Michael's Supercoach in 2012, so she was a classmate and just like took it on board so quickly. And after we all met George and Linda Pransky in February of that year, I mean, it wasn't long before she was saying, I'm going to move to La Cora. I was thinking, why? What's that? Oh, that's where George and Linda live. Okay, and why? Anyway, we were chatting, her and I, in... I don't know, the early part of 2013. And she and I said, it'd be great to come to La Conner and do an immersion, you know, one of those four-day things. She goes, just come then. So we figured it out. So I went. My very first time to La Conner, Washington was in August of 2013. And I still went there to be fixed because I went there hoping that what I'd see over those four days would mean I'd never be depressed again. And I said, yeah, this is what I want. And I was still, you know, beating the drum of that. And she said, win. That's not on offer. This wasn't the first thing she said over those right. five days, right? <laughs> but it was in the morning of day two that she said this. And she said it in such a certain loving, a certain and assertive loving way at the same time. It was like a loving slap across the face that just, went, just snapped me out of my BS, right? Win, that's not on offer. So I said, well, what the hell am I doing here then? Well, what is on offer? You could have a different relationship with every emotion you've ever had. And a different relationship with every thought you have about yourself, life, and everything. Now, I don't know if those were the exact words, but that's what I recall, you know, over 10 years later. And it just, it shut me up. It shut my, I don't know, my intellect up. And I just, oh, okay, that sounds really cool. I like the idea of that. So I listened a bit better. And I was, and I had some insights over the next few days. And by the end of day three, um, just so feeling so good. And on day one, I felt like I was in hell on earth. I remember looking over the, the channel in Lacona and leaning over the barrier going, how on earth can I be in such mental turmoil in somewhere so pretty? What the hell's wrong with me? Anyway, two days later, I went, wow, this is beautiful. And it was like full stop, nothing else. Not in spite of myself or because of this. It was just like, wow, it's just amazing. Yeah. So speak a little to speak a little to the idea of what life is like when your relationship to your moods or relationship to your thinking or, you know, relationship to your feelings changes. Yeah. Well, I can speak viscerally about this right now because this week, um, the Super Bowl was on Sunday or the early hours of Monday here. Okay. And I've been an ardent San Francisco 49er fan for 40 years. And I mean ardent. Sometimes I'd go, I'd see them three times in the season, right? It's 6,000 miles away to California, right, to see them. But I'd, I'd find a way, sometimes once, sometimes a few more times per season to go. And back in the Super Bowl on Sunday, I didn't really see us winning. I couldn't imagine it much. And uh, 49ers lost in overtime. It was a very intense game. And um, I, I didn't feel too bad going to bed two hours after the game finished on Monday midnight. I chat, George phoned and 
you know, we had our usual kind of like post-mortem on the game and he just phoned to commiserate and stuff. And uh, I didn't feel too bad. And then the next day, oh, Monday, I'm glad I always take the day after the Super Bowl off anyway, right? Because I know I'm going to be tired, regardless of who's playing in it. But it, it, I was mourning, mourning on Monday, right? It was just like mourning as in M-O-U-R-I-N-G, not, huh. not before noon. I was in mourning. And at some point when I was making my, I don't know, third cup of green tea, feeling dreadful, I went, I could just feel this. It's okay to feel really sad. It's okay to be this disappointed. And, you know, some people would understand this. Some people would think I'm an idiot. I don't care. Heartbroken. It's like, geez, we come this far again. And I felt for the players, felt for the coaches, felt for my, you know, people I know who are fellow fans. And, you know, mainly for myself, because I was just like really in it on Monday. I don't care if anyone thinks this is childish, by the way. I don't care, right? Because that's just how I was feeling. <laughs> Not many people understand it. Um, I thought I could just feel this. And I'll feel it for as long as I feel it. I don't have to worry about not liking how I feel. I don't have to like this. I don't have to change this. I don't have to do anything about this. So here we are now. Where are we? Wednesday. Okay. Yesterday I was a different guy. Today I've been a different guy. I mean, at some point I'll be able to watch the game. Here's what's different, right? I remember in January of 1991, the 49ers lost the uh, New York Giants in the championship game, the game before the Super Bowl. And they were going for the third one in a row, the way the Chiefs are, um, are wanting to do next year. And the 49ers lost. Joe Montana got knocked out of the game late. And the 49ers lost with the last kick of the game, 15-13, to the New York Giants. And they were not going to go to the Super Bowl. I was depressed for a month. Mate, I'm not kidding. I was in bits, right? The Super Bowl after the 2012 season in February of 2013. Oh, I, I, I was like I was on Monday for an entire week. I have not watched that game back. I still haven't done it. You know, 49ers lost the Super Bowl four years ago, and I watched that within a week. It just... I don't make such a meal of how I feel anymore. And it's funny when I'm not in making a meal of it or resisting it or trying to reframe it. It's funny the grace I have towards how I feel and how easy it is for that feeling to be fluid. And while that's a, you know, a, a very win version of emotions, and I know that for many other emotions as well, like, you know, relationship breakups that I've had in the last kind of like decade and um, losing people close to me. Principle is the same. I'll feel what I feel without resisting it. I can have, I can be at peace with what I'm feeling because it doesn't mean what I'm used to mean in my mind. And, um, and in the bigger picture, I know that emotions and feelings is what tells me I'm alive. You know, because this this mug won't have emotions and feelings. And, and here am I being so greedy that I think I shouldn't have this one. Well, go figure. It's the sign of being alive with consciousness, with thought, with a mind. And... um It's a hell of a ride to be alive. And that's what being alive is with all of the horrible heartbreak, far more significant than the one I mentioned about a Super Bowl game. Far bigger picture than that. And to me, I am so grateful that I've stumbled across this by all those serendipitous um, points in my life that led me here. So that's my story. That's beautiful. 
It deeply resonates because I've had so many similar experiences. Um, I think we all can relate in so many ways. doesn't matter that it was a football team. I mean, to me, you know, it's, you know, I remember there was a time in my 20s. I don't, I haven't thought of this in ages, but I remember there was a time in my 20s when a dear friend of mine and I went to a local cupcake shop here in Los Angeles because they were all new and hot to trot. And, you know, kind of the, it was at the beginning of the wave of the fancy cupcake era. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, and, and this was before I even had this understanding. And my girlfriend and I, who I went to go get the cupcake with, she and I had been kind of having a hard go at life. We were roommates at the time. And, um, we got to this cupcake shop and it was closed because they had run out of cupcakes, even though it wasn't even noon yet. And she and I fell apart. We cried over this cupcake shop being closed. But, and I truly haven't thought of this in years when, but it's the, it's, um, I think why it's, it's coming to mind is, you know, I can appreciate you you uh, talking about this very ordinary thing that rocked your world, because that's what happens to us day in and day out all the time. That cupcake shop, you know, rocked our world. And then, frankly, you know, the rest of that day was a bummer because we didn't we didn't have the understanding of, well, we've been feeling like shit in life. And we really were hoping this cupcake was going to give us a new lease on it, you know, <laughs> so for it to be closed, you know, it's kind of like coming back full circle to what you said at the beginning of, you know, when we put so much, we depend so much with such certainty on the volatility of the, you know, of the constant changing of life, you know, I really appreciate the way that you say that, you know, and, and, and there's also obviously beauty in in the changing of life, but um, before you have this understanding, it feels quite volatile because it's, you know, when you are desperate for life to start getting even and reliable, it gets exhausting when you're like, when am I going to catch a break? Right. It's like, that's when you're in that mode of being victim to life. That was my friend and I at that cupcake shop. We were like, and another thing that we can feel sad about, we can't even get a goddamn cupcake. you know. (laughs) So it's, it's, it, it, it's so, it's so profound, but, and, and so deep to, to truly recognize that our feelings aren't something to um, make meaning of, of, of how we're doing in life. And, and what does it mean about us? You know, it's so profound to really get to that level of acceptance of being able to have a full blown emotional experience and know that you can ride the wave of it. And here's the other thing to then realize I wouldn't change a thing. Now, I would change how the game played out, right? But if I could, but given the fact I can't, oh well. Um, But I wouldn't have it any other way, you know? That's feelings in a human being. And every time I'm disappointed, I bounce back. And it means nothing about me when things don't go the way I want them to. The cupcake shop running out of cupcakes was never my fault, nor the source of my okayness. Yes. Totally independent. And knowing that is, um, in in every aspect of life, is really cool. And whether that, I know most of my work, as you know, is with business people and organizations. And the same principles absolutely apply there of people doing their best day in, day out without the stresses and strains. And they just show up and show up and show up without that being motivation, um, without that requiring motivation or requiring willpower. They show up because that's what humans do when they're not making up a story about what they've made up a story about. Yes. Yes. It's kind of like, and and frankly, I can't remember if I got this from you. 
we'll just call it the deeper wisdom of life. And, and we just happened to both tap in. And maybe I got this from one of our mentors. I can't remember. But strategizing off of an imagination, you know, it's like we yeah. use we use our imagination to create all of these constructs and ideas about who we are and how life works. And then we strategize off of those made up ideas. And it's, you know, it's so empty. I was over burger and fries. Was it? Two weeks ago in LA. Yeah, we had that conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's magnificent. So when tell us, what is your experience now? Because I'm sure inquiring minds are curious. What is your experience now when it comes to that? You have, of course, pointed to the fact that you're feeling less serious inside, but the fact that you feel that you kind of, you know, as a, even a toddler, that you were more serious and, you know, it was easy for you to experience more sadness and things like that. Do you find that those waves are still the same? You just ride them differently? Or do you feel that the waves are even, they don't even come to pass as often? Like what, what's your experience of yourself these days in that way? Well, I'm less, a lot less likely to take things personally. I still do. You know, I'll, if, you know, if a workshop that I've run for a client and they didn't like it, you know, I'll, I'll get into myself on that a bit, right? But compared to what I used to be, geez, it's it's nothing. The other thing that to answer your question would be that I can have the waves. They last less long. They're less meaningful. And um, I get over everything quicker because there's less things to get over. So all I'm getting over really is a thought appearing real. And the feeling will sometimes give me the indicator that it's um, that it's personal or it's out there that's causing in here. Um, that's it. So you know, I think with a bunch of insights that I was not in control over, that have just happened because I remained curious and stayed in the conversation. It, it's meant that I can even appreciate. Lows. Even appreciate my ability to take something personally, knowing that nothing in life could possibly be personal. I know it's true, and look at what I can do in my imagination to make something that can't be personal and take it personally. That's amazing as a capacity. Now, I don't always like it, but it's still a freaking miracle. All of it is. All of it is. I remember, quick story, Dr. Robert Holden was a guest um, on one of the weekends of Supercoach back in 2012. I think it would have been the June, the final one, if I recall. And he was talking, um, and I thought the guy was full of, more full of BS than anybody who came there at uh, six months. But effectively, he was saying one thing, life's a miracle. And I thought that was arrant nonsense. Well, guess who was right? It wasn't me. It wasn't me. And I couldn't force myself to see it. I couldn't read more or speed that up in order for me to see the truth of that. But eventually I bumped into the truth that absolute miracle for this group of subatomic particles to come together out of, you know, Stardust, literally stardust, animated by the force that created everything, have then been in this assembly, to then have been given assembly of my physical being, to be called this entity by my parents, Wynne Morgan, and then to live this life, to have been born and to have the experience of physical being. I mean, Really, it's phenomenal. It doesn't always look like that. And when, whenever I, I hear people having tough times and there are parts of the world where it will not look like a miracle, it will look like a curse. 
I know what that's like and I've never faced those hardships. And there are people who have faced those hardships or are facing the hardships and have never known the version of misery that I made up. All they've seen is the miracle, even with none of the privileges that I've had and continue to have. That's astonishing to me. Humbling, thankfully, too. I have to end it there. That is stunning. Wow. Okay, Wynn. Thank you for dropping us down right into the beautiful, quiet space of who we are deep down inside. I'm sure everybody listening is feeling that beautiful space right now. Thank you, Jesse. It's been lovely to speak with you today. Mm. Thank you for listening wherever you're hearing this. Yes. Okay, well, let's tell people you and I are doing a retreat event all around dissolving stress. March 16th and 17th in central London, oopsies, um, in central London of 2024. So if you're listening to this in any year after, look us up. Build a time machine and go back. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Don't uh, go back to March the 16th and 17th. Go earlier so you can make sure you get your place, right? <laughs> Clever. Room has got capacity. So you come back to February. Where are we? February the 14th. And uh, yeah, we've still got places left. So build your time machine to come back now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, but uh, where can people find more information about you, Win, for you and your work and what you are up to in the world? Where can people find you? Well, the great thing with being called Wynne Morgan, there aren't many of us around. It's not an unusual name in Wales, Morgan as a surname and, and Wynne as a, as a first name for a guy. So there are two people with any kind of online presence called Wynne Morgan. One's an economics professor in Sheffield. Sheffield or Nottingham, he moved from one to the other. And um, there's the guy who's the coach. And I'm the coach guy, not the economics professor guy. Um, and that uh, he and I actually have um, we connected up on LinkedIn because we kept getting messages for the other person. That's so adorable. If you look at Win Morgan Coach, then um, more likely to find me than than other people. And if it looks a little bit like me on the photograph, but younger, slimmer, with less facial hair, it's me. <laughs> I love it. So yes, on all social media and and your website and everything, Win Morgan not the economist <laughs> yeah wouldn't that be a title Morgan, not the economist .com. <laughs> by the way that's not don't don't take that as literal that was meant to be a joke and if you're yes. laughing great and if you're not laughing yeah don't take that seriously please yes i love it um okay when i have one final question that i ask every single mm -hmm. guest and uh yes I don't even need to qualify it. I'm just going to ask you straight. When Morgan, what moves you? You know, it's such a, a difficult question to narrow it down to one thing. So I'm not going to. I'm delighted to say I'm happily moved by anything and everything. And that feels really different than it used to. And I didn't know how, when you asked that question, what would come up for me, but it's true. I didn't want to be moved by everything and every, anything and everything. I wanted to be safe from anything and everything. Now I'm delighted to be moved by it because that's the sign of being alive and conscious. Beautifully said. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your time. 
Oh, I had 10 other directions I thought this might go in because I love to get into your professional side of all the different things. So maybe I'll, if you are willing, maybe I'll have you back to just talk specifically on different subjects. Be delighted. Amazing. All right. Wynn Morgan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for saying yes to you and I doing a, a an event together in London. I am so excited to be with you in doing that. I think it's going to be incredibly powerful. It's so, um, yeah, I, I, I could go on and on, but I'll just, I'll leave it at that. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And you take care. All right. Talk to you soon. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to What Moves You with Jesse. Let's stay connected. You can find more ideas and strategies on being human on my Instagram at What Moves You with Jesse. Sign up for my newsletter or learn more about working with me at WhatMovesYouWithJesse.com. And please rate and review the show and let us know what you think and what resonated. I read every single review. They mean so much to me. You can also call in on our hotline with your thoughts on what resonated there too. It is always live at 818-646-JESS. That's 818-646-JESS. What Moves You with Jesse is produced by Mike McGraw and Tinker City Music. Now, let's take a deep breath give ourselves permission to live in this moment for what truly moves you.